Good morning and welcome to episode 849 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com and our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Hey, Ben. Today we are talking about the Mets. Later in the show, Jeff Paternostro will talk to Toby Hyde, who covers the Mets for SNY.TV and the new Baseball Prospectus Mets site. But we are talking not to the BP annual essay author, Mike Pesca, who is unavailable, but to an able replacement, Mike Vorkanoff, who until recently was a Mets beat writer for the Star-Ledger, now freelances for Vice and other outlets. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. How's it going? All right. So now that you are no longer on the Mets beat, you can talk about the Mets and dish all the dirt that you couldn't tell people while you were still covering the team. You can just sprinkle in all the things that you couldn't say before throughout this interview. But I will start with a question about last year's team. You were with the team. You watched the change from a team that had the worst offense in baseball for the first half of the season to a team that became good at hitting down the stretch. And of course, there was a lot of talk about how Cespedes changed everyone and not only his own hot hitting, but he changed the entire team. What was your take on what transformed the Mets lineup? Yeah, I think it was a lot of factors. I think, um, you know, Cespedes obviously had a lot to do with it. He went through one of these great hot streaks uh, just at the right time, right when he got there. But there's so much depth that got added to that lineup after and around the trade deadline uh, that I think was overshadowed by the Cespedes trade. Uh, it, It was almost ridiculous. I mean, In June and July, it literally was um, a daily threat to see if they would get no hit. You had Terry Collins, probably one of the most mind-boggling things I've ever seen, explicitly going out there to say that his lineup one of those days was not an embarrassment. You know, that's never a good point for a team when a manager has to uh, defend his own lineup. And then the Cespedes trade happens. They had Kelly Johnson. They got Juan Uribe. David Wright comes back. Wilmer Flores starts hitting better. It was like everyone in the lineup went on a hot streak altogether, and they went from the worst offense in baseball to the best. And it was really just, I think, a little bit unprecedented. And everyone just got hot at the same time, and obviously lineup depth was a big part of it. They just had major leaguers in there after a while, not guys like Daryl Siciliani or Danny Muno or Eric Campbell, all of whom were getting a major load of it back. And, of course, Mets fans have long been frustrated about the team's spending. Do you think that they did enough this offseason to placate a fan base that has been difficult to to placate? They, I think, had the fourth highest percentage jump in payroll compared to 2015, but are still 15th, just right in the middle of the pack. Do you think Mets fans are, are satisfied or are they still up in arms? I think until the Cespedes signing, they were kind of rabid and angry. They were kind of frothing like I had never seen them before. Um, The Cespedes deal helped that. I think that after that, Mets fans calmed down. They got who they wanted. And and I think the Mets kind of needed that signing as well for their own organizational legitimacy. I think 
Um, you know, they obviously did very well. They went to the World Series last year, but the questions about their spending and about their payroll and, and how much liquidity they have year to year, they'll remain even after that. But at least it, it tempered their fans and it, it soothed them because, you know, I think mid-January before when they signed Cespedes, you kind of forgot that they, they got to the World Series the year before. I didn't forget, but <laughs> just to be <laughs> Their cute. fans did. It seemed like it, at least. Um, the Cespedes signing was obviously not a given. I mean, it took forever. It really only came together because nobody else was apparently willing to give Cespedes um, the deal that he wanted. You know, I don't know how much this caricature of the Mets front office over the past few years or their finances over the past few years is, is accurate. But my understanding has always kind of been that if they wanted to, if they wanted to spend anything, uh, let alone $25 million a year, they had to get Barb in accounting at the bank to, uh, to approve it, that they didn't actually have, you know, all that much authority over their own finances. And so the thing I, you can correct me if that's, if that's wrong, but the thing that struck me about the Cespedes deal was that they were able to, that they had the flexibility apparently to change course to spend money that they hadn't obviously expected to spend. Is that significant for the reasons that I said? Does it reflect a, um, you know, the Mets uh, financial situation changing in a significant way? The thing is, it's, and maybe this seems like a cop out or, or it's not, but it's also murky, um, right? Like no one has a definitive grasp on what their finances are. They had said for several years, we'll spend the money if we need to, we'll spend the money when we have to, right? And then there were no hard and strong points of evidence for that. And they, they added a few million dollars at the trade deadline, although uh, in a few of those trades, the other teams picked up some money as well. And so I think the Cespedes deal was significant in the fact that you could tell they really weren't planning to sign him. You know, even as far back as October, there were people in the organization that were saying like, look, we don't want to sign him long-term, whether it be a legitimate point you know, that he is kind of a flawed player and investing five or six years, which is what people thought at that point he needed to, to do to get him, or whether it was a monetary issue. Um, and when they signed Cabrera and traded for Walker, you know, those are big payroll additions for them, at least, everything being relative there. And, and I think the Cespedes deal said, okay, when we said we could spend money if we wanted to, look, we just did it. But it also is a one-year addition, right? It's not a huge it's not going to be a huge mark on the payroll for several years going forward. Um, and some of the reluctance to spend money makes sense. You know, Sandy Alderson doesn't like long-term deals for guys approaching 30 or over 30. That makes sense, right? Like we've seen how free agent contracts work out, but I don't think we have any great certainty right now of what the Mets financial wherewithal is. So do you have any sense? I mean, the Mets used to be a team that was in the top, you know, five in payroll. And if, if, they were again suddenly right now uh, with the core that they have, with the young core that they have, with all the young pitching that they have, they would be just this incredible force in the National League. They're, as it is, they're a very good team, but they, you know, throw them another $85 million and, uh, you know, and they're the Cubs. So do you have any sense of whether in the next five years, in the next three years, in the next 10 years, whatever, they will ever go back to being that team? If I had to guess, they might approach it, but I can't see them spending top three like they used to do in baseball. You know, I don't think um, philosophically it's something that Sandy Alderson likes to do. He likes to stagger contracts. He he likes to not have bloated salaries on there. I, I don't think anyone can say for sure. I guess the biggest question is, like, when all these pitchers start nearing free agency, are they going to get paid for it, right? Are they going to start getting traded away? Matt Harvey is three years from free agency. Jacob deGrom 
going to be hitting arbitration next year. And you have Syndergaard and Matt after that. If I, if I had to guess, I don't think that, you know, that they'll be a top spender like they used to be. But I, I think that with enough revenue coming in, they should be able to be top 10, which is where they are right about now, I think. How do you envision the full season Cespedes in center experiment going? Do you think that he will be replaced a lot in the late innings? Do you think there will come a point where he is no longer the primary center fielder? Or do you think it will go more smoothly than last week's inability to pick up a playable ball from slightly under the center field fence or last year's playoffs would suggest? I think it'll go more smoothly than last year's playoffs, at least because there are a lot of lows there. But I don't think... It's not going to be without its rocky points. Uh, Juan Lagares' best asset is his, uh, his defense in center field, right? They, they played him a little bit um, in left field this spring, just, I think, trying to test him out there. But he seems to lose some of his value if they go with him in that position. They'll use what they did probably last year, which is throwing him in, uh, Lagares in as a late-inning replacement for Cespedes, putting him, Cespedes into left field at times uh, against, say, left-handed pitchers. You know, there will be some games where he flubs the ball and – you're going to see a, a triple for no good reason, or you're going to see, uh, you know, extra base hit for no good reason, and there are going to be some games where it looks like he's kind of pacing himself for a long year. I, I don't think he's going to be very fluid. And, you know, that kind of makes sense a little bit. He's not a natural center fielder after missing three years there, though uh, he likes to say, you know, that's the position he likes to play. Is there a place on this roster where you see a real risk of regression from last year? Because, you know, the you probably know the plexiglass principle, the Bill James uh, coined term that teams that uh, improve by a lot one year tend to, uh, you know, tend to be worse. The next year tend to regress. But the Mets, I think they improved a great deal last year. And this year, Pakoda basically projects them to be just as good, uh, maybe slightly better. But do you see anywhere on this club where you look at it and go, oh, yeah, no, that absolutely is a big regression spot from last year. That guy is not going to be as good. That sort of thing they did can't happen again. Uh, I don't see any glaring regression points. You know, I I see some possible trouble spots. They kind of have very little depth in the middle infield after cutting Ruben Tejada, not that he was any great player. You know, you always have to be wary of an injury in the starting rotation that can happen at any point, and they don't have a lot of depth at the AAA level or – um, beyond those five guys that are healthy and in there right now. And, and their bullpen, I think, kind of really overachieved for about four months of the season last year when they were putting in guys called up straight from Triple A or the minor leagues and just having a top-five bullpen, DRA-wise at least, uh, for a good portion of the year. So I think those could go south, and I wouldn't be surprised. But I don't see any glaring point where you're like, all right, this is going to be a, pa- a part of the team that gets dramatically worse, especially considering, you know, third base for them last year was was really a black hole at times when David Wright was missing for pretty much two-thirds of the year. Yeah, how would you expect Terry Collins to handle the rotation in the bullpen? Because obviously, great rotation, you would want to ride those guys as hard as you can if you're just thinking about short-term concerns. But of course, there are a few... Tommy John surgery survivors already in this rotation. Do you think that he will look for every opportunity to get these guys out of games early and save them for later in the year? Or is the fact that, you know, the bullpen looks a little shaky beyond Familia, something that will make him sort of replay last year's playoffs and kind of letting these guys dictate when they come out of games over and over again? I think he'd be cautious um, initially. You know, a lot of that is also 
not mandated, but there's a lot of uh, back and forth between the front office, which wants to be cautious with the starters, even though there's no one who's in for, say, like the innings limit drama of last year, uh, as they had with Harvey. But I don't think he's going to try to pitch them seven, eight innings every time. The bullpen right now seems like it's it's in a good spot, and they have you know enough good guys to fill in those seven and eighth innings. But that's why you have Bartolo Colon as well. He's an innings eater, and when Zach Wheeler comes back, I think he intends to come back somewhere around July. You know that could give six guys for five spots and allows them to kind of mix and match when they need to as well to save people's arms. But you know, if no one's reliable in the bullpen by May, except for Familia, everything changes, right? Uh, you know, Terry Collins understands he has to win right now, and we know that managers uh, often revert to short-term thinking uh, if it's in their best interest. And I, I think that at some point there will be a, a wonder if he's pitching, you know, say no Syndergaard too much and too hard, but I, I don't think initially that's going to be their plan. There was a point not that long ago where we started to get used to pitchers coming back from Tommy John surgery in 13 months, 12 months, sometimes even less than that. And it seems like one of the one of the reasons that Matt Harvey was able to do what he was last year is that because of the way the season worked out and because they were fairly cautious, uh, he ended up having what, like an 18-month recovery time. And, you know, Stan Conti and some other smart people have talked about how uh, we have to recalibrate our expectations for pitchers coming back. So with Wheeler, Wheeler, I think it's 12 months. Actually, I think it's 12 months this week since he had. I think Friday is his one-year anniversary. Is it at all controversial when he actually you know, steps on a mound? Is, is, there, is this calculus dictating his return date at all? Uh, uh, the funny thing is I actually talked to him right about this point uh, last week about this very topic, you know, he was talking about how Harvey had the benefit of two off seasons, right? 17 months, as you mentioned, is like that perfect sweet spot, um, you know, according to the guys at ASMI and, and other people for when pitchers should come back. And Wheeler had his a month ago, and he had his a few days after Josh Edgen, a lefty reliever for the Mets, had his TJ. And Edgen is set to start pitching in spring training games or in minor league games, and Wheeler was kind of like bemoaning the fact that he can't throw yet. He had intentionally, uh, originally intended to come back in May, and he realized, you know, this is too soon. He, he sees the numbers. He knows that now uh, what used to be 12 months is the norm is 14, 15, 16 months. So he's very conscious of that. He's pushed back his own uh, return date to July 1st, uh, about thereabouts, and, and he's very conscious of that. He doesn't want to push it, and the Mets have been – pretty conservative in pushing their own guys back because Matt Harvey, if you remember, wanted to come back in September of 2014. And they're just like, nope, not going to happen. We're not going to allow you to push it like this. And they made him wait for six more months. And Zach Wheeler saw how that worked out. And he's willing to wait and he's willing to take it very slowly and push himself off the original goal. What would you expect to be the scenario when he does come back? Do you think there will be any controversy over what the Mets do with him? Or do you think that by that point, the rotation will have sorted itself out? Someone will be hurt. Someone will be struggling. It'll be very obvious where to slot Zach Wheeler in or is there a possibility that he goes to the bullpen at that point? Can I say both in that I think there's going to be controversy because it's the Mets and it's New York and it's going to be a little slow news-wise in July, but also the fact that it'll probably work itself out. I mean, pitchers get get hurt over the course of a year. It's not unfathomable to think that someone has to go on the DL from that starting rotation, even if it's for a minor injury. Um, you know, Steven Matz missed a lot of last year, so they're going to probably be cautious with his innings. 
with his workload to try to pace him out over a full year. You have Wheeler coming back off TJ, and, and that's going to be um, a little bit rocky just because returns from TJ usually are anyway. And so you have Bartolo Colon as a sixth starter there who can slot in when they need to give someone a day off. And I think they've got the infrastructure there to put guys in when they need to and skip a guy's start when they need to, just like they did last year. I just don't think it'll have um, the shock value of everything that happened with Matt Harvey last year, because a lot of the same ingredients won't be in play, which is to say uh, Matt Harvey's, you know, star power and Scott Boris and his microphone and uh, having gone it through all of it for the first time as the Mets did. So I, I think it'll be a little smoother this year. Last postseason, we talked on here about how, well, how I found it very odd that extremely famous person Paul D. Podesta was never mentioned during any of the postseason broadcasts, uh, considering how extremely famous he is. Uh, and you basically never heard about his role in the Mets, really, over the last few years. Now that he is gone, can you sort of give us an idea of like how much credit he gets for the team being where it is today and whether it is a... Um, whether it does leave a, a, a notable vacuum in that front office. Yeah, I think he should get credit for a lot of the things. You know, it's telling he left. They haven't replaced anyone in his position, which was VP of scouting and amateur development, something like that. You know, essentially he was doing the job of like three people. You know, he was he was on the road scouting a lot. He was running uh, their farm system. He was lording over the draft. And the Mets have remade themselves a lot through the draft and through trades and player development. And that was what Deep Podesta was responsible for. So he, he didn't get a lot of credit for it, at least externally, but internally, uh, you know, he did a lot of work. He expanded his skill set too. You know, scouting wasn't really something he did before he got to the Mets, but he asked to take on that role and uh, take on that skill set when he got there too. So he would hit the road pretty often to look at players. And yeah, you're right. It was actually kind of interesting why no one talked about his contributions Essentially, until he left to go run an NFL team. There was an article recently in Men's Fitness that chronicled David Wright's return from spinal stenosis and all of the rehab and the hours he has to put in to this condition that probably isn't going to go away. So, how much of that was visible to beat writers last year? And based on what you saw and, and what you've heard about what it takes to just get him on the field. What do you expect, you know, how do you think he'll hold up, not just this year, but for the four additional years that he is under contract? You know, last year, at least, he was always kind of, when he came back, he made it clear that he was having to go through extra work to put himself on the field. I think he put in an extra hour or two stretching and preparing before games. Uh, You could tell just before even batting practice, you know, he had to go through this routine of stretching and uh, and twisting for like 10 minutes on the field while everyone else was doing their thing. He was very cautious about it. He was very uh, premeditated about it. And I don't expect anything less this year, as that article said. You know, the question for the Mets was always, okay, we can get him through two to three months of the regular season once he's back and we kind of figure it out on the fly a little bit. But spring training and next year was always going to be more problematic because we have to figure out how to get him through a full season and all the rigors of that. And David Wright has to learn on his own part to just not push it as much. The guy always wants to play, uh, and that's caused him some trouble in the past, as commendable as that may be. And I, I don't know what you expect. You know, this is spinal stenosis. There's really not great precedence for that. I think I saw a number he wants to go for around 130 games this year. 
I, I know they're going to be very cautious and force him to skip games and not play a lot games in a row. And who knows? Maybe it flares up. Maybe he has a bad stretch at some point. It's just there's just a an unsettling part to that type of injury where you can't really project for a very long time how much he'll play and how much it affects his production. And I don't know whether you got to see the vaunted Cindergard slider that has been added to the repertoire when you were in Mets camp recently. Based on what you saw of him or what you've heard of him, do you expect him to leapfrog either of the other guys in the rotation in effectiveness this year? I, I guess you would maybe say that it kind of went to Grom, Harvey, Cindergard last year, but do you think that he will climb over either or both of those guys this year? Personally, I think it's not crazy to think he could be the best one of all of them this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, aside from his his arsenal and his physique, like the thing that really uh, makes an impression on you when you're around the team every day is he's such a fast learner. You know, and, and pitching coach Dan Warden is really impressed with that as well. Last year, I think he learned a two-seamer, a sinker there in about two bullpen sessions. You know, one day he wasn't throwing his next start. He throws it 50 times against the Phillies and he hits 98 with it. Uh, and that's kind of what happened with his slider this year, too. He was tinkering with it a little bit last year at the end of the year, I think. And, you know, he kind of honed it over a few bullpen sessions this spring. And that's what impresses the Mets. He, he kind of, everyone gets caught up in his physique and his natural stuff that they forget he's very quick to learn things and adapt them into his game. And I think that's what made him successful over the second half of the year. He, he caught up mentally to what he was able to do physically. And I, yeah, I, I think it's very much possible that he's their ace. If, you know, they get to October and they need someone to start game one. It's simply the guy's just a beast, you know, like he's six, six. He, he's really looking to look like store as well. Getting that nickname with the hair flowing now. And he hits 100, and he learns how to adapt very quickly. Yeah. All right. Well, we force all of our guests to give us a win total prediction before we release them. So tell us, how many wins will the Mets have in 2016? Oh, man. Let's go with 91. Okay. All right. Do I win anything that's right? <laughs> um, no. Our respect, I suppose, would be it. Unless you actually place a bet, which you could do elsewhere. <laughs> all right. Uh, so... Thank you to Mike for coming on. You can find him at Vice Sports and Elsewhere, and you can find out where the Elsewhere is by following him on Twitter at Mike underscore Vorkanov. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. All right, so stay tuned to hear Jeff talk to Toby Hyde. Hold me in your Looked up for the fear trap beneath the the second half of our 2016 Effectively Wild Mets preview. We're joined by Toby Hyde. You can read Toby Hyde's stuff at sny.tv and at the brand new Baseball Prospectus Mets site, which you might be aware of depending on when you are listening to this podcast, where he will be our lead prospect analyst covering the Mets minor league system. Toby, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. It's kind of cool to hear that. As long as I've been reading Baseball Prospectus, it's fun to hear, hear my name on it. So we're going to start with the Mets pitching, which I think we both agree will be a key facet of any success they have in 2016. And I'll frame the discussion like this. You can use whatever metric or advanced metric you want, win-based or otherwise. Who will be the best pitcher on the 2016 Mets? Well, you want me to say Bartolo Colon, right? We'll get to Bartolo. He's got his own separate (laughs) section. Okay. He's got his own call. Look, I think Jacob deGrom was the best of the group last year. I also 
I think he's due for some regression, right? He can't he can't get better, right? It seems impossible to me that Jacob Degrom gets a lot better. I thought that after 2014. So and then so he kind of did a little bit. Yeah. So then you're in the position of going, well, he he made us he he's reached his top end projection. Can he possibly keep going? Because he's done it once. He's done it pretty much every year since you since in the last six. He's gotten better over the year before. Sometimes in ways that were imperceptible in the stat line, and particularly I'm thinking about the move to AAA a couple years ago when the stats looked like it was getting worse because he was learning some new breaking balls. But he keeps getting better. So do you bet against that? Or you've got Matt Harvey, who before he got hurt two years ago was a legit Cy Young candidate, although DeGrom was that more recently. And maybe Noah Syndergaard has a better fastball than both of the other two and as good a breaking ball. When you look at Syndergaard's curveball, it's right up there with Harvey's slider and DeGrom's breaking ball doesn't quite have to have DeGrom's command. So those are your three choices, aren't they? I'd say so, unless you're a big believer in Steven Matz, and I am, no. but probably right. not this year. So I'm so tempted to say Syndergaard because he's young and he's getting better. But I, I think that's a year early. So then the question is DeGrom or Harvey. And this isn't real. We haven't done stat-based, right? They both, get a, they both get a fair amount of ground balls, although they're not crazy high, mid-40s. They both strike out a bunch of dudes, right? I don't know that there's much. I don't know that it's much. That there's much to say about the stats, other than you have to make a guess about where you think each of their careers are going. I think you could tell me I'm wrong. You with me on that? I think it might be Syndergaard. Well, that's the thing, right? Is if you've eliminated him for being a year early, why? It could well be Syndergaard. I'm so tempted to say it. And it's a more fun pick than either of the other two guys. It is a bit. Are we bored of Matt Harvey and Jacob Degrom? As silly as that is to say. Yeah, I think so. There's just a little bit because when you look at the advanced metrics, the other two just just come out a little better. It doesn't matter whether you're looking at ERA plus or minus or any of baseball prospectus's you know advanced stats. When you get when you get to a per pitch or per inning or you know sort of per outcome thing, they, the other two come out better. And so you almost have to pick a huge regression out of the other two to put Syndergaard in front, or say Syndergaard is going to be the best pitcher in the National League. Like heads heads and shoulders said, that's what you're saying if you say Syndergaard's there to hop him over the other two. And I want to do it, but I can't do that yet. I mean, I'll say this about Syndergaard, and you got to take this with a couple grains of salt because it is, for starters, a small sample. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. it's also a September sample. Yep. But in September last year, he had a 525 OPS against, struck out 37, walked two in 27 and two-thirds innings. Stupid good. It is, and, he... there's, and there's something to and, the idea that he's he was adjusting to the majors for his, the first time, and that's a pretty big jump, as we both know, from AAA to the majors. And he looked pretty good in October too. Yeah, there, and he's starting to throw the Warth and slider. You know, eighty-eight to ninety-two. There's, I want to say, potential so jump bad. there. Yeah, I do too. But you're right. It's like Harvey and Degrom are going to be good ace level starting pitching. You can probably just pencil in them for. 210 innings of very good baseball. And I should point out that we're predicating this on no one gets hurt, right? Predicting Hoopla about his elbow next is a really, is a a fool's game and no one wants to hear that. Especially not Mets fans listening to a Mets preview, theoretically. Right. Or just general fans of baseball would get to watch this rotation. Right. So you gave me the September stat line and you probably know this or you might not. So so he had four starts in September and October. I assume that that combines the September and October start. Yeah. Which was great. It was against the Nationals very late. Those starts were at Atlanta, home against the Yankees, at Cincinnati, and against Washington with nothing to play for. Because the Mets had already clinched uh, that national start, right? The last weekend of the season. Yeah. How many? So 
of those did he see a good major league lineup? Atlanta was awful at the end of last year, and if Mets fans remember that well, because Mets fans enjoyed that. Cincinnati was not good. That was at Cincinnati, so it's a tough place to pitch, and he was ridiculously good. 11 strikeouts, no walks that day. But that team had mailed it in months ago. Yankees hit him hit him up a little bit. That was that was a in city field, and then he was great against a Nationals team that also was more or less done. So I'm friendly to saying, hey, dude got better, but it was also four starts against three teams that gave zero Fs. Are we allowed to curse on this podcast? I don't know. Good question. Well, anyway, three teams that were giving zero Fs, and one team that hit that that scored five runs in six innings against him with a couple home runs. And he gave up home runs in three of those four starts and four home runs overall in four starts. He did have a little bit of a long ball problem towards the end of the year, so, despite so, his right, so, good peripherals otherwise. Right. So here's the thing is all those balls in the zone, all those fastballs. I just think the command isn't there for me to jump him over, over Harvey and DeGrom right, right now. And if you want to say he's going to be there, you're, I think you're making that bet on his command improving. And that's fine. And you, and you can do that. Do you think you have to sort of say, you know, I think that's the implicit assumption is it gets or it gets good enough or better enough to make up for the, you know, to make to make the fastball play even more ridiculous. Well. I think you can make an argument if you just line them up, Harvey, DeGrom, Syndergaard, Syndergaard might have the best stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And the change is fantastic. He just doesn't like to throw it and he's not he's not comfortable with it because he hasn't been throwing it that long. Absolutely. Not going to fight you on that. I'm going to go with Harvey because he's because because I just think DeGrom's going to. I just can't get get on you know seven years in a row of Degrom getting better, <laughs> and, and and Harvey's really good and we know that and it's Cy Young level stuff when it's there, and I think the year has focused him and I think I think he'll avoid the the Boris level distractions and yeah he's gonna go out and he's gonna tweet silly things. See on Twitter today? I've forgotten yesterday oh. today. Yeah, I know it, it changes. It's, it's all like Axe body spray ads. <laughs> right. As, as though, oh boy. Yeah, so I'm going to take Harvey, and I wanted to take Syndergaard, but I just I just can't get there yet. So let's talk a little bit about Stephen Matz, who I think we're both high on him. You saw him a lot in Savannah when you were the radio voice of the Savannah Sand Nats. What does he have to do this year? He had a pretty good start, his last spring training start. One of the best uh, he had so far this spring. It's been a little bit of a rocky spring. What does he have to do to sort of take a step forward and become a top-of-the-rotation starter in 2016? He needs to be, God, I hate that I'm going to use this word, but consistent. But but I mean something very specific with that. And I, and I mean it in a technical sense in terms of release point. Sometimes it starts to wander on him and then with the, the breaking ball flattens out and his fastball command goes. But when he's right, the stuff is absolutely there to be a very good major league left-handed starter. But when he loses the release point, he loses that fastball high and high and tight to lefties and high and away to righties. Or he, sometimes he comes into righties and it and he and he pulls it. Um, so so for me with Mats, it's it's all about whether he can he can repeat every every pitch. Um, as dumb as that sounds, or pitching coachy as it sounds. At least just Bartolo Colon, Toby. Do, do you buy that? Yeah. You didn't respond. Oh, I I buy that. I think for him, it's just major league reps. I think yeah, consistency ties in with that too. You would have liked to see him get a little bit more action, game action down the stretch than he did between the lat tear and the stiff back in September. Yeah. I will point out, too, he was a little lucky last year in terms of the yeah, number. Yeah, sure. He's not like a 1.6 ERA guy or whatever he was. Yeah, two and a quarter. 92% left on base percentage. That's dumb high. You'd expect something in the 70s. Sure. 
And I do think it might be a little, I don't want to compare him to Zach Wheeler, but it might be a little more like Wheeler's adjustment period in the majors than Syndergaard, Harvey, and DeGrom that have sort of spoiled Mets fans over the last few years. Sure. So you want to talk about Bartolo? I do want to talk about Bartolo. I'm going to use the, I'm going to use the beat writer cliche here. Talk a little bit about Bartolo Colon. Talk about him? Talk well, about him, yeah. So it's funny to me that, that Bartolo got as much national attention as he did last year when he wasn't very a very good pitcher, although the, the comedy was, was still high-value comedy. Bartolo's amazing, right? He's this guy who's totally reinvented himself. He's not. He was a star in Cleveland as a young guy. And it's great. It, as a fifth starter, he's perfect. He's hilarious. Guys seem, other players seem to like him. He's the only, he might be the only fifth starter in baseball that the team's fans look forward to. Right? Usually fifth starters are it's like usually Jason Marquis. Nah, no, no, who looks forward to a Jason Marquis start? Or is that your point? That's my point. This is like Jason yeah. Marquis. R- right. Yeah, but but Med fans are like excited to see Bartolo Colon on the mound. And 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 more importantly, like Cardinals fans and you know, other you know, Royals fans and you know, other random like really baseball nuts think think Bartolo's funny. No one gets excited about mediocre aging right handers. It's a different, it's a different beat. Yeah, sure. But it's, yeah. There's it's aging all... right-handers and there's 43-year-old Bartolo Colon. Right. So is he going to be good this year? I don't know. Probably, Probably not. Probably not, right? I but... mean, if you look at sort of the, the defensive independent metrics, which I'm a little a little leery of when it comes to someone like Colon, just because when he gets hit, he's going to get hit hard, and that's just the yeah, way it's yeah. going to be. It's going to blow up. Yeah. But he has been maybe a little bit unlucky over the last two seasons. It's probably almost 400 innings oh. at this point. So how much can you really put into it you kind of see it with these guys when the fastball velocity starts to go a little bit like sort of late career danny heron is a good example of this i think where like he'd still post really good strikeout to walk rates but he'd just get hit hard right it's a trade-off in the, if you're in the zone with sort of mediocre fastballs or below average fastballs yeah how about that also the mets defense has been bad i don't know how that plays into it even even if your met- metrics d- differ about how bad it's been it's been bad in key spots outside of juan Lagar's, you know 2000 and uh, 14. So we'll switch gears now and talk a little bit about the prospects. And it's, I think, weird doing a Met season preview and not really, not necessarily not focusing on the prospects, but not looking towards the prospects that might come up this year. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is the Mets are a pretty good team and they might not really be looking to fill holes internally, or you might not be turning your attention to that in June when they're 10 games under 500. But also because this system's emptied out over the last few years, and that's good because a lot of those players are now key cogs of this team, but there isn't really that next wave behind them now. This is true. Also, the team went to the World Series. Yes. Right. I mean, <laughs> once that happens, all of it, like, October, how many really prospects? stop caring about org rankings, I think, yep. at that point. Yep. Yeah. For, for your, you know, prospects are the ultimate fantasy. Yeah. It's, it's how baseball fans dream on the future and all of a sudden when the when the present is fun and exciting and your team's in the world series prospects take a, a whole lot uh take a you know big was, secondary uh, stats casey stern of sirius xm to say was it prospects are good but parades are better i did i had forgotten casey said that that's perfect but we will talk a little about the prospects we won't talk about steven matz who is still technically a prospect as we both know but who's your guy right after matz in the system is it just you have to say ahmed rosario at this point as as the best prospect, yeah, he still makes me uncomfortable. Sure, I can buy that. Is there someone yeah. that makes you more comfortable? No, that's and I think that's your point. 
Are you asking me like who's the number two prospect? Because I know you I ranked Rosario number two, I and did. I don't think I would go anywhere else with it. I mean, essentially, um, that's what I'm asking you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, I th- you know I know you ranked Rosario number two at Baseball Prospectus, and if you're looking for my seal of endorsement, which you're not, that's how that's, I think that's right. There are enough scouts who see the system up and down, who think he's the, he's the Mets' best prospect. You know, and they're not thinking about Mats at that point to say that. And the numbers were good enough. And when I saw him year over year, I thought he had gotten better enough at shortstop to make that happen. And he's he's a baby. But and I, and I know he's in your top ten. I still like Becerra. I think it all comes together for Becerra. He's like a it's it's just more cool than Rosario. Yeah, he's, sure. Because he's going to hit the ball. profile. He's going to hit bombs. He's going to hit the ball a mile. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, I think Gavin Chikini's a big leaguer. I've I've been a little high on him for a while, higher than most. But it's hard hard to get him above four where you've got him. You know, so that's the only name. That's the only other name that sort of strikes me as like exciting that you and I are higher on than others. I think I don't want to put words in your mouth, but yeah, I think Rosario is basically a consensus candidate as the, the top Mets prospect non-Steven Matz division. Desmond Lindsay was a pleasant surprise, frankly. I think once once the Mets put him in game action, you know, the Mets. Uh, you know, I remember hearing at the uh, um, the Mets say to anyone who who would listen when Desmond Lindsay was their um, first pick a year ago. Um, supplemental round 53rd overall because the supplemental round now is as long as the first round, which is awesome. Thanks, Bud Sealing. And the Mets would tell anyone who's listening, "Oh, we got a steal. We we thought no one, not enough other teams saw him in the spring. We think he's a great value at 53. We would have been happy with him, you know, mid first round. And he had some minor hamstring stuff. Is that the right? Hamstring, yeah. Yeah, yeah, his hamstring. You know, ne- no one, you know, no one else saw him. We we're thrilled. He's really a good athlete. And you hear this, and it's the kind of thing. It, if you hear it from any, if you hear it, you're like, that's nice. Like everyone thinks their draft pick is, is a good value, right? Yeah. Or they should. No, I, I totally agree with all of this. And I saw him on the field in Brooklyn. I'm like, oh yeah, he looks like a first rounder. Right. So, so that's the pleasant surprise in the system, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I wrote about him a little bit at BP last week where we had a 10 pack on prospects that might break out in 2016. Oh, I'm sorry, just like, I'm studying for midterms. Yeah. I just think he might be the guy that makes me look bad next year because he'll be that much better. Like I had him at four, I think on some early drafts of the mm. list. And again, it's, it's not a great system right now, but that might be a bit aggressive for a supplemental first round pick who got a little bit of taste in Brooklyn, but otherwise in the complex and didn't have much of a spring track record because he, he didn't play and is learning a new position on the fly as a professional. Yeah. Right. Seven seems pretty reasonable. He's not gonna make you look terrible, right? Yeah. Like how good would, what would you, so let's say he has a great year. Yeah. Rosario is then bad and then hurt. So so sort of double downgrade. Right. I mean, at that point, Lindsay's probably a back end top 100 type. Yeah, he has a great while. year. You know, the tools play up. He he looks great in center field. Nimmo, who's who's sort of hurt, doesn't 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 stick in the big leagues. Doesn't learn how to hit left handers. Tom Smith doesn't hit in double A. Right. You can go through this list and go, oh yeah, there's a plausible path for Lindsay to be the top prospect in the system next year. And you wouldn't have written anything wrong about him now. Sure. I don't know why I'm defending your rankings, but I but I think I think I think Lindsay's the guy that the, sort of the the fun name to watch. He's the new kid on the block. Right. right. Well, who's your? I'll let you pick your own fun name to watch in the system for this year. I'm gonna go with one of the good fielding little shortstops, I guess. Can I go Guillermo? Just because just because it's so you silly. You can. It's he's so much fun to watch. It's fun, and he's he's gonna he's gonna slap 280 wherever he is or 270. And he's going to make a lot of really good plays. Wherever Mets fans, wherever the Mets start Guillaume, which will probably be 
Uh, well, Chikini's what? Chikini's going to be in AAA, right? Chikini and AAA, Rosario in AA. Yeah, yeah, he'll still be in St. Lucie. I would he'll imagine. Start an advanced day, yeah. And and then there are going to be people in Florida going, "This kid's amazing," and all, and all the prospect guys in in Florida are going to go, "This is awesome." He makes highlight reel plays every night, and he will. So you'll read his name a fair amount, and then he'll get to double A late in the season, probably, just because things sort themselves out. And he's going to slap the ball around. He's going to use the left field line because he's a left-hander. And he just sort of pokes it over there. So it'll be fun, and he'll hit a little. He'll hit enough to to be entertaining. He made a play in the World Baseball Classic. He was playing for Spain because I don't know <coughs> what the rules are for the World Baseball Classic. <laughs> he's from Venezuela originally, but uh, it's like. It's one of those plays where he kind of did everything wrong and like the uh, <laughs> announce team even kind of implied he did everything wrong because he backed up on a in-between hop to take it on a short hop <laughs> and then snagged it from the outfield grass into a perfect shoulder high strike to the second baseman. To start of course, play. Of course he- it's just it's so effortless that I, mean, I don't know if he'll ever hit enough, but he's so wildly entertaining to watch that he's a perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's good. Player. It's really good entertainment. It's just something about shortstop defense. I think the MLB.com like posted it on their video site like comping him to Ray Ordonez which is eh, that's a big ask Ray Ordonez was his own beast but it's that kind of he does he's been known on occasion to inspire Ray Ordonez like feelings in me right and yeah you said there's something special about shortstop defense rightly or wrongly all right Toby we'll let you go with this the Mets are bringing back their 1986 uniforms this year on Sundays we're very sartorially concerned here in the second half of our NL previews Hmm. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Keith Hernandez, not a fan. What do you, why? Why not? I, I think it's the, I don't know if he likes it because it's the V-necks or they're too tight. Well, you think they won't look good on today's players? <laughs> is, this, is this Keith being old and crotchy? What's what's going I, on I here? Keith always has a little bit of he a, does, he he's think never like, been he a big like, fan of the, I think he likes the pinstripes. I don't know. Or maybe I, You know what it is? You know what it is with Keith Hernandez? It forget forgets for a second that the 86 uniforms. It's that it's that he thinks that when he wore it, it looked the best. He thinks that <laughs> no one he thinks that uh, uh, he thinks that no one else can possibly make it look as good as a young Keith Hernandez. Yeah, it's it's good that Jordani Valdespin isn't on the team anymore, wearing the 86 jersey with the one back pocket out like he used to, because Keith oh. would just fly off the handle. Oh, you'd be furious. I mean, I actually now I now I disagree with you. I wish that Valdespin was still on the Mets just for that that broadcast when they when they wear the throwbacks and Valdespin does something stupid and 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 Keith just sighs. Yeah, you know the sigh. I know everyone, the sigh. I think everyone everyone knows. knows the sigh. Yeah, look, that's great. Uh, the Mets should wear eighty six throwbacks because it's twenty years and that's fun. And especially if it makes Keith Hernandez just like a little bit perturbed. He'll get mad when the racing stripes don't line up properly too. Like they're not. Wearing well, the belt and keeping it belted. Of course, because right, that's yeah, that's why they don't wear do that anymore. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, even like the video on the Mets homepage with you know celebrating these reunions, like Carter's stripes aren't quite perfectly lined up because they can't be. I don't know if there's a better option though. The '86 road ones were nice with the New York script, but I do like that the grays. Yeah, but the point is kind of to give the fans something special on on Sundays. Yeah, everything's better. Everything's better than than the the military ones, the camos. I was never a big fan of the black jerseys either, but were you part of the ditch the black movement? What was, what was I wasn't. The... I didn't. I didn't have. I didn't have strong enough feelings on them to. It was just. It felt to me like a very late '90s thing. It was. It was just very late '90s. Yep. When everyone was wearing. At least they didn't go teal. That's true. Full Islanders. Uh, yeah. Look. Why, how could you be opposed to that? To, to complain about that is the most. Is the is just complaining about something for the sake of complaining. Spring training. Keith has got to work himself into game shape. <laughs> Fans too, right? Because you can't complain about Terry Collins' bullpen usage yet. Not yet. There will be months for that. 
Toby Hyde, lead prospect analyst at BP Mets. You can also read his stuff at SNY.TV. Follow him on Twitter at Toby Hyde. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. All right, that's it for the Mets preview. Thank you to Mike and Toby for coming on. You can support the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash effectively wild to become a patron. Five people who have done that already. Matthew Cox, Alex Hohauser, Doug Graham, Nick Graham, and Dan McKinley. Thank you. You can also buy our book. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. It comes out May 3rd, which is getting pretty close. And it's the story of how Sam and I ran the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league baseball team last summer, and our various adventures and misadventures along the way. You can pre-order it now at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can contact us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. And you can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Baseball Reference Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP. We will be back tomorrow with the next team in our preview series, the Cleveland Indians. New York.